Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is Political Rewind. If my voice sounds a little unfamiliar, don't worry. You are in the right place. I'm Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I'm filling in today for my good friend Bill Nygut. Bill is celebrating his birthday, so happy birthday, Bill. Let's get into the show with the big, you might even say huge, story of the weekend. Donald Trump was back in Georgia. I happen to think that Georgia is a very red state. I think it's red as well. I think they cheated. They cheated at a level that people haven't seen before. And uh, But I think it's a very red state. We'll be digging into the rally the former president held up in commerce over the weekend, including how he's shaping the political races in the state. We'll also catch up on news from the legislature as it approaches its final and most consequential days of this session. Also, we'll have a special guest join us later in the show to talk about the controversy surrounding Supreme Court Justice and native Georgian Clarence Thomas. So let's jump right into our conversation. Joining me to discuss all of this today, uh, first, welcome Chuck Williams, political reporter from WRBL Television in Columbus. Welcome, Chuck. Good to be here, Kevin. Hope you're doing well. I am. I am. Next, we have Donna Lowry, host of Georgia Public Broadcasting's Lawmakers. Thanks so much for joining us at this busy time, Donna. Always good to talk with you. Absolutely, Kevin. And uh, we're in the, the final throes of the legislative session, so I'm happy to be here. Great. Great to have you. And Jim Galloway is here. Jim, as you all know, is the retired longtime political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jim, uh, it's great to see you again. I don't get to see you around the newsroom like in the old days, I guess. No, no, no. And it, But it's, uh, it, it's, it's good to join you again. It's good to have you here. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. And finally, we have Stephen Fowler the politics and election reporter here at GPB. Good morning or good day there, Stephen. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah. Well, listen, we're going to start with this Trump rally. And Stephen, I feel like we just have to start with you because you were there. I mean, and I know you've covered these things before, but what was it like in commerce? Well, this rally was unlike any Trump rally that I've ever covered in Georgia. Uh, for starters, uh, it was smaller, you know, uh, actually. The uh, Trump spokeswoman said it was the biggest it's ever been. That's not true. Uh, I've been to bigger rallies in Georgia. There was a lot of empty space. Um, but it was a smaller crowd for a Trump rally. Uh, Commerce is about, you know, an hour, hour and a half northeast of Atlanta. So it's not that far out of the way. But there were fewer people there. Uh, the energy level was not quite the same as some of those raucous Trump rallies that you saw leading up to 2016 and 2020. And uh, this was for a slate of seven uh, insurgent primary challengers backed by Trump to try to remake 
Georgia's Republican ticket as part of Trump's broader effort to remake the Republican Party. And, you know, honestly, it was one of the strangest rallies that I've covered uh, just for the atmosphere. People were leaving, people that were up on the bleachers, you know, handpicked to sit in the bleachers behind Trump were leaving as he was speaking. It was also a very cold and windy night, so that might have had a, a bit to do with it. But, you know, all in all, it was just a strange experience. Jim Galloway, uh, you know, we talk or Stephen mentioned that all these insurgent candidates, I mean, you almost need a scorecard at this point to figure out who Trump's endorsed and who they're running against. But uh, it's is in your experience, has any national figure taken so much trouble endorsing people in Georgia before? No, no. I mean, I mean, you have to go way, way, way back. I mean, like to when uh, when FDR uh, came across a. Uh, a, a U.S. senator that he didn't like in Georgia and uh, tried to campaign against him, and it re- rebounded. It didn't work. No, so it's it's been decades. Uh, I, I, let me add uh, a living room aspect to what Stephen just said. You know, I mean, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, whenever uh, uh, Trump opened his mouth as president, it was not hard to find a live stream of one of his rallies. Uh uh, my, my wife and I, pretty much, we had to, we spent an hour trying to track down where to find where to find Trump online, so we could so we could actually tune in and watch it. I, I yes, the the crowd in, in commerce was small, but I, I, proportionately small to other rallies. I would bet that the internet audience was much much smaller. Uh, and 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 I think that goes that 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 may be a little even more important than the physical bodies. Uh, the, 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 this followed the same format that other other Trump rallies have. It, you know, if you're a if you're a candidate looking for FaceTime with that kind of audience, you get there early because you know that once Trump starts spe- speaking, it's all about him. Maybe maybe you get 15 seconds, which is what happened to all these, uh, to, to, to David Perdue, who's challenging Kemp, to Herschel Walker, to Jody Heiss. They all, got, they, all, they all got maybe 15 seconds. So you wanted to be on the front end and uh, say maybe in the five o'clock hour to, 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 to watch these guys. And the most interesting thing I thought was David Perdue. Was David Perdue kind of endorsing the lock em up chant against Brian Kemp. You had a, a, a uh, there, there was there was a whiff of the French Revolution there. You had you had a chant being used in 2016 against Hillary Clinton turned and used against a fellow Republican today. And oh, the, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The chant was by uh, lock lock em up by the way. <laughs> yeah, and and video I saw that uh, Senator Purdue actually sort of smiled when it ha- when it happened. But you know, what's interesting, what I find interesting about all of this is, while the former president has his list of people in Georgia he thinks did him wrong in 2020, there are others in Georgia, like Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who are leading the fight to the Republican Party 2.0 as as the lieutenant governor calls it. I'm wondering if that is starting to take hold here. If you've got this whole push away from Trump by people that have been lifelong principled Republicans, and you're starting to see it down here a little bit in Columbus, because you talk to some of the Republican 
people that have been the party stalwarts over the years. And you say, and the question is, where do you fall on Kemp Purdue? More and more are saying Kemp now, even though some are saying it very quietly, while others are proudly putting Kemp's bumper stickers on their car. But you're starting to see among just the what I call the mainstream Republican folks, you're starting to see a real leaning toward Kemp in this part of the state. And I don't know if that has anything to do with what's going on with the former president or whatever. And it'll be interesting to see if more of those people go one way or another after what happened up in commerce over the weekend. Well, there's no question. And we do have some more uh, uh, sound, I think, of, of Trump talking uh, that he he landed with all of his grievances and with uh, targeting Brian Kemp and anyone associated with him. So let's uh, let's share just how serious he was about that. Brian Kemp is a turncoat. He's a coward. It is a complete and total disaster. Just consider these facts. Kemp and Raffensperger allowed themselves to be bullied into a catastrophic consent decree engineered by Stacey Abrams that effectively abolished signature verification and allowed massive voter fraud to occur throughout the state of Georgia. So, Donna, um, first of all, uh, he he is really not give, not backing off on his treatment of uh, on his treatment of Brian Kemp. And he uh, we had David Perdue literally get on board with, yes, uh, finally saying my election was stolen, too, after after he formally conceded and, and acknowledged the vote. And then, of course, we have key legislators looking running for higher office. So this has really turned into something that you almost need a scorecard to track. Oh, absolutely. And so, you know, the big thing is, will a rally like this move the needle at all for uh, for Purdue? For the others on this Trump ticket, like U.S. Representative Jody Heiss, for John Gordon, who's running for Attorney General, for Bert Representative, um, I'm sorry, Senator Burt Jones, who's running for Lieutenant Governor, um, whether or not this moves them, you know, has a rally like this does anything to help them. It gives them a little bit of extra, you know, boost in terms of the people who were there, maybe. But as I too. As Jim Galloway mentioned, start was looking for information or some kind of way of watching what was going on and could not find it. So I I stuck to Twitter, and so I saw a lot of what Stephen Fowler and those with the AJC and the Associated Press had to say about the the rally. And I and it, it was striking how a lot of the comments were similar on the the smaller size of the crowd, and uh, but die-hard supporters. But I'm wondering if they're reaching people outside of that core um, the way they hope to when they bring in a Donald Trump. I I do think the you know the diehards are going to stay there. You know I think more than one person quoted the um, I, or I heard a quote I think may have been one of the TV stations who said a woman who said that she it was. Um, she looks to God and Donald Trump, and not necessarily in that order. I thought that was that was interesting that she would say that, and so they're not going to stop in the way they feel about Donald Trump and what he's talking about. But I'm wondering if the the others who others who are more moderate are going to be more interested in looking the other way. And and let's face it, the governor has done very well as an incumbent right now, certainly with what's going down on here at the um, 
at the state capitol. Uh, he had, with this money, this surplus money that has certainly come in, uh, he has been able to do a lot with his legislative priorities. So I, I, I'm not sure if that rally is going to make a big difference. I guess we'll wait and see. And, and, and to follow up on that point, Kevin, uh, I'm not sure that the rally has to have a huge, make a huge difference. Uh, I mean, politics in Georgia, especially in November, has become a game of inches. And I, I'm, I, I was really struck uh, with that clip that you just played, uh, where with Donald Trump calling uh, uh, Kemp a coward, and and something else that Kemp's or that that Trump said during the camp during the, during his speech was that uh, you know if if Kemp is the nominee, then uh, then Herschel's Herschel Walker's chances could be could be uh, damaged. But 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 back to that 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 Kemp as a coward clip. I think that's you're you're going to see that in in October and November. That's that's a tool that Democrats maybe not you know I, I'm certainly not the Warnock campaign, certainly not the Abrams campaign in person, but a, but a Democratic campaign is going to use that clip to try to dampen Republican votes in November. I, I and I think that's where that's where this rally may may have its most important uh, uh, influence. So, so Stephen, take us back to the rally for a second. And I have sort of two moments I'd love to see what it was like to be there. The first was David Perdue's embracing of the uh, stolen election for the really the first time. And then also what it was like as those other candidates came to the stage and how much time they got and, you know, what the mood was like when that happened. Well, so I'll do the second one first. You know, all the candidates got to give speeches during the pre-show, which was about 4 o'clock running until about 6 o'clock or so. So everyone that was there got to hear longer speeches. And for the most part, other than David Perdue, you couldn't really get a sense of what policy platform these candidates are running on other than Trump endorsed them and the elections were stolen. Um, And... Uh, you know, it, uh, but I, I mean, one of the quotes that stuck out to me was Bert Jones, the state senator running for lieutenant governor, who kind of laid it out there that, like, told the voters that, like, look, you know, everyone's paying attention to Georgia. If you don't vote for us and we don't have this red wave and we don't win in May and then in November, it's going to be a whole lot harder for Donald Trump to run for president again in 2024. And so that's kind of the saying the quiet part out loud about the stakes of the risky endorsement of running all of these different primary challengers against popular incumbents that's going to resonate far beyond, you know, who gets to be the Republican nominee for these offices. But uh, the other thing is for most of the day, uh, most of the things that these candidates said, including Trump, it was pretty quiet. I mean, I could hear somebody heckling from the very back of the crowd, a CNN crew that wasn't there. It was actually right side broadcasting network is a right wing media outlet. But, you know, people weren't really cheering and clapping a lot of things that you would normally get applause lines from before. I mean, yes, calling Brian Kemp a coward, that got a lot of lines. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that Stacey Abrams was like the Death Star, that got a lot of claps and applause. But, you know, by and large, a lot of things didn't necessarily land. And so David Perdue going all in on being an election conspiracist and saying that his election was stolen you know, going all in, I mean, it's kind of like Jim said, you know, I, I wonder, you know, just how effective that's going to be in the primary. And especially, you know, that's an ad in November. 
even if David Perdue isn't the primary candidate uh, that wins, you know, that's an ad that comes back in November that Republicans will be attacked for because at least part of the party is embracing this lie about the election. Yeah, and, and, you know, I always make this point that uh, even if Trump had won Georgia, he still would have lost, right? That always seems to be uh, overlooked when the when these uh, things go on. Now, um, Chuck, you, I know, had done a recent story about Purdue and Kemp were in the Columbus area on the same day uh, for different reasons. And why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because it, it shows a remarkably different approach to what they're doing. It, it really does, Kevin. It was two weeks ago tomorrow. Um, uh, Senator Purdue spoke to the Republican, um, spoke to the Republican, uh, Columbus, Muskogee County Republicans, and Governor Kemp was at the Harris County Courthouse up in Hamilton, 25 miles away, with Sheriff Mike Jolly. Some of y'all may remember Jolly. He's a very popular uh, sheriff in Harris County. He's been there for decades. Uh, in 2015, he rose into kind of the national prominence when he put up a big sign in front of the courthouse saying Harris County was politically incorrect. So Jolly is very popular up there. He held a meet and greet for the governor. 75 or more folks were there, and they came out of Columbus as well as just the traditional folks from Harris County. And you could tell Governor Kemp was very comfortable in the group. It was much larger than the crowd that uh, Senator Perdue drew down in Columbus. But what was interesting is kind of talking to Brian Robinson and some other people on the Republican side about this. It sort of showed the, the strategy that Governor Kemp's using. He's using these sheriffs these local people that have followings in their community. He has about 100 of them state, statewide who are endorsing him. They're putting their names on the line. And to me, that feels like a counter to what's going on with Senator Perdue using the Trump endorsement and, and doing it that way. And then you're also seeing it on the financial side. Um, down here in Columbus, and I know this is – going on throughout the state, but you can really see it in Columbus because our business community is a little smaller than, is much smaller than the Atlanta one, but Aflac and Synovus, two Columbus-based corporations, are all in on Kemp. If you look at the financial disclosures from their PACs to their executives, if you look down the line, those companies have given substantial amounts of money to Kemp's re-election campaign. So, John, that seems to indicate, you know, uh, if if that strategy were to work, that that uh, it's going to be a the Trump endorsement won't be enough. And we know Purdue is way behind in his fundraising, but it seems like Bert Jones, uh, who who is never uh, unquotable this session in the legislature, I guess, is counting on that endorsement just being enough by itself. Yeah, I think he definitely is in terms of uh, where he where he is on his campaign, you know, they, we have somebody else running for lieutenant governor here, of course, and the um, Senate pro tem, Butch Miller, who has been trying to, you know, make a little headway when it comes to making sure that Trump sees him and that he gets a little bit of something that's um, anything that the uh, former president can send his way. And that isn't happening, you know. So um, Bert Jones is... Um, is in, in when it comes to Trump, and um, 
he's going to keep trying to do what he can to to get that endorsement and and uh, continue on his path. And it'll that race in particular, I think, with Republicans is an interesting one to watch. Um, with these, uh, there's actually several people, of course, running for lieutenant governor, but those two. In both in the Senate, trying to make sure that the Trump people see them as the best candidate for those for them is um, an interesting one to watch. And, and Kevin, I would you know to, to tie what everyone's saying all together. I've been out on the campaign trail with David Perdue and Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams, and I mean you you, you think about it this way: um, the people that you interact with the most are your local elected officials, your local sheriff, your mayors, your county commissioners. And what they say and do tends to carry a lot more weight politically than the national environment, the national party. And what I've seen with the governor's race is Brian Kemp is a strong conservative. He's delivered conservative victories on state spending, on teacher pay raises, on abortion, on election legislation. And he's got a lot of support from local business leaders in Columbus, from local sheriffs around the state, county commissioners and things like that. And so what I found is even among really strong Trump supporters in the state, they don't understand why all of these people and all of these things and all these records that Kemp has done is not worthy of their vote just because Donald Trump said so. I mean, I talked to somebody at a Kemp event who said, look, Donald Trump's the best president America's ever had, but he doesn't know anything about Georgia. He doesn't know anything about Republican politics in Georgia. And so I like the guy, but I like Brian Kemp even more. And I think that's what we're seeing right now with the polling difference, the fundraising difference, the enthusiasm difference with Kemp is because even though Donald Trump is endorsing somebody else and attacking Brian Kemp, he's got a lot more at the local level and the state level that people can draw from. Yeah, yeah, I, I would call this a, a kind of a, a, a silent Republican majority strategy. Uh, where you're where, where where you're not going to get a whole lot of uh, vociferous uh, endorsements of Kemp by the by the Republican stall by Republican stalwarts, but in the end they'll go that way. And and I think we've got to keep in mind the real powerful argument that 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 Brian Kemp has behind him. We are eight weeks away from the May twenty fourth primary. We have one week to go in the legislature before signy die. After that. Kemp has 40 days, I think maybe 30 days, to sign all the bills that are passed, including the budget, which has quite a bit of money going to quite a few people who are going to be casting votes in that primary. So he's got a, he, he is, he's, he's got a stick uh, that he's not going to talk a whole lot about, but it certainly is there. It definitely is. And, you know, one thing I want to go back to, and this goes to what Stephen was talking about, and to back to Sheriff Jolly real quickly. When I walked into his office, he's got a bookcase, and on one shelf he had a Make America Great Again hat and a Kemp hat. And I asked him about it kind of walking out, and he said, Chuck, this is about Georgia. It's not about the nation. And I think that sums up where a lot of these local officials are. Yeah, that does sum it up well, Chuck, and it leads us to our first break. When we come back, we'll dig into the latest developments in the Georgia legislature. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB, back right after this. (music) 
Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for Bill Nygut today. Back with me, we have Chuck Williams, political reporter from WRBL Television in Columbus, Donna Lowry, host of the Georgia Public Broadcasting's Lawmakers, Jim Galloway, retired political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and Stephen Fowler, politics and election reporter for GPB. So the Georgia legislature is getting close to its final days of work. Uh, let's get into some of what <clears throat> excuse me, lawmakers have been up to and what might be coming. Uh, Donna, you're, you're actually literally in the Capitol right now, <laughs> ready to get to work. Um, so let's start with uh, an issue I know you always cover closely, education. Uh, the Senate has said okay to uh, raises for teachers, which has been a big conversation and a big priority of the governor for obvious reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And so the uh, $2,000, which is the finishing up of the $5,000 he promised when he came into office, uh, that will go to teachers. Uh, that, of course, House and the Senate both passed that in their versions of the budget. And so that in, in, um, in itself is a, a big deal in terms of that. And then um, just extra money in the Senate budget for, <clears throat> excuse me, to help a little bit with um, third graders in terms of reading and, and their learning loss. That is something that the Senate put in there. And so education gets a restoration of their um, austerity cuts that were eliminated during the uh, the cuts that we saw in 2021. That's the main thing. QBE will be fully funded, and that um, that will make a lot of school districts happy and uh, put a lot of things in the, in place that uh, have been lost over the last few years. It was interesting to look at both both of the budgets and see that the word restore was in a lot of that budget restores this, restores that in a lot of areas. And education, certainly the um, biggest part of the budget, 53% of the budget is uh, getting, getting some good stuff. Jim Galloway, the, uh, obviously there's some controversial topics and we'll probably get into some of those, but certainly the legislature has played along uh, with governor Kemp uh, to uh, pass a lot of bills that are going to be very popular with, uh, with voters. Right, right, and I, th- I think I, I think uh, uh, the most important is probably fulfilling Kemp's promise to to raise teacher salaries by by five thousand five thousand dollars a year. It 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 took it, it, it's taken quite a while because of course we had we had to go through the through the uh, the, the pandemic recession. But I think uh, uh, Donna can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, the, the, they were two thousand dollars short. That money is in there. And and on top of that, there may be a. Uh, I think there is a bonus for teachers. Uh, am I right, Donna? Yeah, they they will be getting a bonus. They, they're getting one coming up in the amended budget. But then, what the main thing was to make sure that these raises were something that could continue uh, long after. You know, we don't have this huge surplus. So yeah, teachers will make out well. And of course, you know, all state employees are getting a five thousand dollar raise, uh, and that. And in some areas, some state employees are getting more than that. They'll get another 2000 for instance, those in the correctional, uh, correctional officers and areas where that, uh, that certainly is an area where they have had a hard um, time with turnover, really, really big numbers of turnover. People are not staying in corrections fields. So right, right. Yeah, every, every, those areas. 
Right, right. I mean, I mean, employers all over the state are having a, a hard time keep, keeping workers, and that's that's part of that's part of the address here. That's part of the concern. But again, we got to go back to the political. Those people, the state employees, especially teachers, they vote. Yeah, I, I really do think that's uh, a big part of what's going on. But another thing uh, that has happened in the Senate, Donna, and, and I know you have a good handle on this, is. Um, Senate Bill 226, which allows parents to challenge the materials and curriculum uh, basis in classrooms. So talk about that a little bit, because that looks like it's going to end up passed, too, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And so that is all part of a lot of what we've seen, and that has to do with making sure parents you know, uh, have the right to know what's going on in the classroom and have some faith over what's going on in the classroom. And certainly um, we've seen a lot of bills that are focused on that. There's a parent's bill of rights that looks like it's going to pass. And then there's this looking at whether or not parents can come in and actually ask to look at materials that the teachers are using. And first they, you know, kind of petition to talk to the, the principals and then they can ask to look at the materials. And then there's a process that's still sort of being worked out on how they uh, are able to determine whether or not these materials uh, can be used in the classroom. But it uh, gives parents an, a, a way to get into the classroom and really have some say over what their teachers um, are teaching. Uh, and this is all part of, uh, you know, just like a series of bills that we've seen this legislative session focused on making sure parents have a say in what's going on in the classroom when it comes to um, issues dealing with divisive concepts, uh, critical race theory, in the sense that, that um, people want to talk about how certain things dealing with race are taught in the classroom. And certainly the other bill that is a, a big one is whether or not you can a parent has a say over whether a child should wear a mask in um, while they're in school. And so that, that the, all of those bills seem to be moving forward. I don't see any, um, because they're certainly the governor's priorities, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't see those passed. So a week from today is the end of the legislative session. So um, we've got, uh, they've got a lot to do in a short period of time, but those bills in particular are going to make it, I believe. So, Stephen, one of the one of the more interesting developments in the legislature that you know got a lot of attention is um, Speaker Ralston introduced the mental health the Mental Health Parity Act, House Bill ten thirteen, with a lot of fanfare. Actually, uh, you know, with a lot of what looked like a lot of support, but now it's the subject of a misinformation campaign, uh, and it, there are some are wondering what's going to happen with that bill. Yeah, so Democrats and Republicans don't usually agree with a lot of things in Georgia right now. But House Bill 1013, the Mental Health Parity Act, is one of them. Um, it's been the result of years of study and work. It's got the stamp of approval of the House Speaker. So it's something that theoretically would not have a lot of resistance. But you have kind of... Uh, Usually people say the Internet is not real life, but we have this Internet spillover coming into real life of uh, fringe groups on the right attacking this bill, calling it Abrams care after Stacey Abrams, uh, making claims about pedophiles and about government takeover and the World Health Organization and just a bunch of stuff that doesn't have much to do with what's actually in the bill and what they're actually trying to do. But... 
Um, the House, you know, really the big divide in the legislature, as I like to remind people, isn't between Democrats and Republicans. It's between the House and the Senate. So now that this has passed the House, uh, the Senate is hearing this, and there's, I think, a hearing later this afternoon. And so there's some question about what sort of changes might be made to that bill on a good day. But then now that you have this activist pressure kind of coming out of far right field, uh, that's going to be one of the biggest pieces of drama in this final week of the legislature with real, you know, with real tangible effects. Kevin, I don't know enough about uh, the speaker's bill, but I do know this. There's a problem when the largest mental health facility in Muskogee County, Georgia, is the jail. That's a problem, and it's got to be addressed in some way. When you go out into the homeless community here, you see mental health issues everywhere. And I think, you know, if there's a move to get better mental health care to people who need it, that's something that should happen in the state right now. And I know law enforcement would welcome it. Uh, yeah, it, uh, uh, I think it was very recently, uh, Patricia Murphy, uh, the, the, the political columnist for the AJC had a, had an excellent column that began with this, with, with the observation that once you go down the rabbit hole, it's really hard to claw your way back out. And I, I think that's what, that, that, that is, that is, that's what's happening here with this mental health bill. You have a, this is a very substantive bill that's undergone maybe two, three years of study and it's be, being presented by serious people. And and yet it's it's being subjected to to uh, to to the the some internet generated hysteria. Now some of it is some of it is 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 backroom political stuff that you have to know the history of. Uh, one of the main uh, opponents of of this bill is uh, is Debbie Dooley, uh, who is the, uh, the 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 kind of the the she she came on the scene with the Tea Party Patriots back uh, back in two thousand nine. Uh, and she and, and and Speaker Ralston have had a a a long-standing feud. If you'll remember, she parked herself in the Speaker's district in an attempt to, to defeat him uh, some some years ago. And and I think that's that's a good bit of what's driving this. Uh, it's you can always sometimes opposition uh, is uh, in in the state capital is driven by who who is for it. Who who owns it and who would benefit from being its uh, from, from being its sponsor? Hey Donna, we only have you yeah. for a few more minutes. As you, I know you're literally outside the door of someone you have to interview. So, um, again, you mentioned the last week for the legislature. So, what should we be watching for? Um, you know, as as we watch what, what they're up to here, that will be significant or tell us what's really going on. Yeah, well, so in addition to that mental health bill, which we'll um, certainly be keeping an eye on, it's uh, a major bill. I think there still has a lot of support, and I think that uh, we're going to see uh, a lot of pressure to make sure that passes. But the, the big will be the um, elections bill, the omnibus election bill, 1464, that um, brought in some of what was we saw in SB 202. So there's still a lot of um, a lot of interest in making sure that gets through. There's the um, the marijuana licensing bill for the medical marijuana, that bill is to make sure that the distribution, that there's distribution the way that um, it, it um, has ended up becoming something that the courts are dealing with to take away a lot of the um, barriers that have kept the, the 
thousands and thousands of people who are hoping to rely on medical marijuana and keeping them from getting that medical marijuana. That certainly is um, going to go through. I, you're going to hear a lot about that. Um, there's uh, some, some pressure to um, get into things like there's a, a distraction, distracted driving bill that they want to look at, um, closing up a loophole that um, tickets drivers, if they actually hold their their bills, um, I'm sorry, hold their phones in their hands. Um, and then the social media regulation, of course. There's a bill that um, people could sue social media companies if their posts are removed or altered, that kind of thing. So there's still some, some bills out there with a lot of, a lot of support. The main one deals with, of course, the election laws and with the, some of these things that we're talking about in terms of the um, Parents' Bill of Rights, CRT, some of those kind of things. So I think we're going to see all of those discussed in the next few days. And uh, I know we've got um, we've got four days this week, and then signy die next Monday. Well, thanks, Donna. You're going to get the last word because uh, uh, we, we have to let you go now, but we'll be yeah. watching all that and looking for your reporting as well as that of others. So it's yeah. time for our last break. Well, thank you, uh, Donna. When we come back, we'll have another guest join us as we talk about the controversy surrounding Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who is one of Georgia's own. This is Political Rewind on GPB. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley, filling in today for Bill Nygut. With me are Chuck Williams, Jim Galloway, Stephen Fowler, and joining us for this segment is Ken Foskett, a former editor and reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ken wrote a book about Clarence Thomas during his time as the newspaper's Washington correspondent. I have that book on my bookshelf, signed by Ken. So welcome, Ken. It's good to see you again. Thanks, Kevin. It's really nice to see you and uh, be with all the rest of you. So for his book titled Judging Thomas, The Life and Times of Clarence Thomas, uh, Ken got to know the justice well. He interviewed more than 300 people for the book. So, Ken, let me first try and summarize as simply as I can why Clarence Thomas is in the news. Since the whole thing's a little complicated, um, and so I'll try to keep it brief, and then you'll, you'll help us make sense out of it, I hope. Yeah. yeah. So according to media reports, text messages – sent by Virginia Thomas, the justice's wife, to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, urged Meadows to challenge the legitimacy of President Biden's election. Thomas and the Supreme Court have been ruling on various matters related to the issue, including what documents should be made available to congressional investigators. So legal experts have been calling for Thomas to recuse himself from the cases involved. Not surprisingly, Thomas has said nothing. So, Ken, what's your take on all this? Make sense of it for us. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, obviously, there's a lot you can uh, say about this, uh, Kevin. But, I mean, first of all, um, it makes total sense to me that Ginny Thomas has been revealed as a very, very politically active uh, woman. Um, she came to Washington as a young woman having uh, gotten her law degree. Uh, because she wanted to be in Washington. She wanted to be in the mix. Uh, she worked for 
Dick Army in Congress. She worked for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, she worked for the Heritage uh, Foundation. And, um, you know, I think, honestly, if she had not uh, hitched her wagon to Clarence Thomas, I think that at some point she probably would have found a way to run for political office. So the fact that she is being shown through these text messages and some of her other political involvement to be very active, very engaged, uh, is not, not, not surprising to me at all. Um, there has been, I would say, a pretty dramatic shift over the last 15 years in that when I knew Virginia Thomas and I was in, you know, sort of in Clarence Thomas's orbit, um, she was very much on the periphery of the Republican Party. I mean, at the time I knew her, she was at the Heritage Foundation. Um, she had an office that was smaller than a closet. Um, I, I mean, I got the impression that uh, what she was doing for Heritage was, you know, not all that uh, important to the foundation and uh, that she was, you know, very much um, sort of on the outside. Now, what's happened in the last 15 years is she has, uh, you know, migrated very, very, very close to the top of the, you know, the uh, conservative, very conservative uh, wing of the Republican Party. Uh, and that has definitely created some very serious problems, I think, for Clarence Thomas and for the Supreme Court, most especially for the Supreme Court. Hey, um, Ken, help me out here. Uh, yeah. One of the most troubling things, I think, about these email texts that came out uh, were, I think, in the neighborhood, maybe uh, November 20th or number uh, or, or, or so, where uh, where. Uh, where Mark Meadows assures Ginny Thomas that you know, all will be put right when the King and Ki King of Kings enters the 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 area. It, it it and 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 she she kind of returns with her own expression of of religious political fervor. That there there's a there's there's a there's a strain of 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 kind of Christian nationalism in here that 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 I that I find very troubling. And I know I know uh, Clarence Thomas himself was was raised in a uh, he, uh, he went to a parochial school in Savannah if I'm not mistaken, did he not? And and I mean how does religion enter into into the relationship between Clarence Thomas and Ginny Thomas? Well, so first of all, regarding Clarence Thomas, not only did he go to parochial school, but he was in training to become a priest. Uh, you know, he, he went to a school and was on a track both in high school and in college for, for the priesthood. And he, you know, switched courses uh, as a young, young man. Um, Ginny Thomas uh, came from a, a Protestant background. Uh, I'm less familiar with her, you know, the degree of her religious, you know, conviction, um, I do think that, um, you know, one thing that happens to um, people who stay and live in Washington and for whom politics becomes their life over a period of time is that um, it, it, it takes on um, very, very dramatic and almost a biblical, um, uh, you know, significance. So, you know, one of the things I, I was noticed in the text is, you know, is that this is a, a war, this is good and evil, this is, you know, and I mean, there's definitely a religious component to that. But I think, you know, people in Washington tend to view these political fights in those terms. And that, you know, if the other guy uh, or gal wins, you know, the, the world is lost and, and you know, we're, we're all doomed. And, 
you know, I think that's not the way, you know, most people look at it. And it's certainly not what politics is supposed to be about. Yeah. And, and I think it's also important to, I, I don't think a lot of people that were involved with a lot of these things like Mark Meadows and Jenny Thomas and things like that. Uh, it, it's, I don't think it's, it's quite possible to understand the scope and scale of power that these people have, you know, from being outside of DC and seeing things, you know, if, uh, you know, not saying this is the case, but, you know, if like uh, Brian Kemp's wife was texting something about the election, feeling things about that, it would have a little bit different resonance than the wife of a Supreme court justice. But I just think, you know, we're here 500 and some odd days after the 2020 election and just now finding out things that people in positions of power have said and done. And I think it just goes to show the scope and scale of uh, just how big this conversation about the election and about power in our country and who has it and what the direction of it's going that, I mean, I think it'll be years to come that we'll still be finding things out. But this is really, I mean, the, the text, uh, the texts that were released mirror a lot of conversations that a lot of Republicans in power had in Georgia and around the country in the lead up to the election. And it's important to remember that if it weren't for a couple of people that didn't feel this way, we might have a very, very different outcome post-2020. So, Ken, of course, and not shockingly, based on you know what I learned in your book, Clarence Thomas has had nothing to say yeah. <laughs> about this. But but talk about that aspect of his character. And then I, I know this isn't entirely fair, but speculate a little bit about what you think he'll do. Yeah. So a couple of things to know about Clarence Thomas. Uh, you know, first of all, philosophically, he is most closely aligned with libertarianism. He's, uh, I, would, I would describe him as a libertarian. He believes in free will. Um, and um, I think based on his nature, it would be very, very difficult for him to tell his wife, don't do this. Stay out of the, you know, stop being involved in politics. And this is, you know, not good for me. It's not good for the court. I just don't think he would he would do that. Um, the second thing to know about him is that he is also a very stubborn man. And so, uh, you know, I think that this particular situation uh, exposes, exposes a blind spot for him. I don't think he, uh, you know, I can't say for sure, but I don't think he realizes, you know, the, how, how this looks and the fact that he, you know, does have an obligation, you know, to recuse himself in certain instances. And I'm not sure that he's going to do that because of the, his, you know, this stubborn streak that he has. So Ken, you have sat and interviewed him. Uh, what what do you remember most about those interactions with him? So the 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 thing that is always you know is so curious uh, about Clarence Thomas is as you say he is very quiet he doesn't ask a lot of questions he's he you know he keeps uh, uh, you know very much uh, uh, to himself but in private the man has an absolutely expansive, uh, explosive in a good sense, 
uh, uh, presence. I mean, he's funny. He's engaging. Um, he's very, very widely read. I mean, I, I had really, really interesting conversations with him about, you know, different books that he was reading at the time, you know, from authors that, you know, you wouldn't expect him to be to be reading. Um, and, uh, you know, and he was also, you know, he's, a, he's very, very beloved by the people who work for him who, uh, you know, worked at the Supreme Court. He's, he's one of these people who really takes the time to get to know everybody. Um, I, I mean, he has a very, very warm and generous personality, and uh, that you don't get any of that when you see him on the court. And, I mean, he does give speeches to friendly crowds, and I think some of it comes through there, but for the general public, you know, you're not going to get – a, a true picture of the man, you know, underneath the robe from from what you see on the Supreme Court. Ken, what's his relationship with the other justices? Because I think that's going to become very, very important in the yeah. next next few weeks and in, in years. I mean, how how subject is he to 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 peer pressure, especially from yeah. from from John Roberts? So there I'll have to say I don't know the current situation. At the time that I was interviewing him and, and, and talking to him, he had very close relationships, I would say, with most everybody on the court, especially Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, Justice Scalia. They, uh, they both uh, gave me interviews to talk very, you know, very favorably about, about Clarence Thomas. Um, but, you know, the court has changed since then, and I don't know. Um, but... I will say that the one thing about the Supreme Court, just to keep in mind, is these are the most independent people in our government. I mean, there is you can't tell them to do anything. You can't make them do anything. Um, you know, it's by design in the in the Constitution. And, um, you know, I'll never forget, uh, you know, uh, Scalia telling me that when he first got up to the court and, uh, you know, he was going around to lobby on this case and that case, and he got nowhere. And he said, finally, I just gave up. Uh, so, um, yeah. Well, thanks, Ken. Um, and we really appreciate you finding time. But that's all the time we have from Political Rewind today. I want to thank our guests, Chuck Williams, Jim Galloway, Stephen Fowler, Donna Lowry, and especially Ken Foskett, who it's great to see again. Thanks to producer Sam Burmistaz, senior producer Natalie Mendenhall, and engineer Jesse Neiswanger for their help. I'm Kevin Riley. Thanks for joining us and have a great rest of your day.